Welcome into this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm Zane Hope, and as always, joined by Kalen Jones and Chris Cartman. Today, we're going to recap ASU's big upset victory over number five, Washington. And then we're going to get a little bit into the Mill Madness event that happened last Friday. But before we really get into it, guys, how are we? Doing well, Zane. How you been? Pretty good. Chris? Mid-season. Can't complain. <laughs> Midseason cannot complain, and ASU midseason is in a very different spot than we uh, all thought they would be at this at uh, the beginning of the season. Obviously, they just beat Washington 13 to seven, and uh, the first top five victory for ASU since 1996 against Nebraska. A lot of you probably remember that. Uh, before that, the the last top five win was 1986. Those no 87, right? 87. The 96 and 87 teams are the only two teams to make the Rose Bowl in ASU history. Uh, Going into this game, ESPN said ASU was the only team in the country to give up 30 or more points in 11 straight games. ASU, biggest home underdog since 2005 against USC, and uh, nobody picked ASU on staff to win this game, but there was one staffer that picked ASU to cover. (laughs) Well done. That was me. Good one. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) um, Just... Definitely the first game that I can remember picking ASU to lose badly in that it won. Um, And I guess there were questions about Washington's offense coming into this game Mm -hmm. and just the caliber opponent that had been played to that point. And and we saw those things end up proving really problematic against ASU. It was a combination of Washington playing poorly, probably having a really bad game plan, uh, not adjusting well enough to what it should have been doing within the game. ASU having its best game by far defensively in not just this year, but in multiple years. And uh, just kind of a little bit of magic, everything kind of seeming to go right for ASU. Um, and and that's just every once in a while in college football, you're going to have a game like that. And this seemed to be the one. Yeah, no, it, it, it was pretty odd. And then looking back at it, as you mentioned, Chris, like Washington's offense, I'd, I'm not surprised that they – weren't able to get things going it's just the fact that they weren't able to you know find a way to generate more than just seven points like obviously they had the two missed uh, field goals during the game that would have put them over double digits but for them to not be able to you know string something together you know maybe in the third or fourth quarter even early on it was really confusing because throughout I think we mentioned on the last episode like ASU has played you know maybe a first quarter and a third quarter well or second and fourth quarter well mm-hmm. For all intents and purposes, they played a complete four quarters. When you look at all three phases of the game, they did just enough, so to speak. And really and truly, when you look at what Washington was lacking in terms of playmakers, the loss of John Ross, the lack of you know a, a dominant offensive line, I think that's what really cost them against ASU because their front four was really able to, to manipulate the game defensively and then offensively. Again, they were doing just enough to get by. My main thing as far as the prediction going into the game versus what actually transpired was – um, ASU not being able to run the football effectively throughout the season to this point and Washington's defense being so good I sort of anticipated ASU would struggle have some three and outs punt, give good field position to Washington Washington would then be able to take somewhat of a lead then you'd see ASU press there'd be some mistakes turnovers, Washington's got two and a half times more turnovers then ASU this season, ASU hasn't generated any turnovers. There'd be maybe a special teams breakdown like we've seen in, in previous games, and and all that would make the final score look a little bit even more lopsided than the game might have been, but none of those things actually transpired. ASU was 
doing a very good job itself defensively from the get-go and and a different type of game from a feel standpoint than all these other ASU games that we've seen in recent years mm-hmm. just because there was the lack of the chunk plays given up um, just it just it just was different it just had a really different sort of a feel a vibe we're gonna find out whether that's anomalous as, right. as you go forward or whether that's the a trend that really wasn't totally demonstrated previously but starting and not realized and now is going to start to actually show up more in terms of the results of games and that's kind of what I'm fascinated to see moving on and you talk about going forward for this this team and this program and before we really get into the X's and O's of this game let's just address you know the state of the program we kind of did this earlier when really it seemed like every fan was calling for Graham's head at one point mm-hmm. so now you know following a big top five victory like this in a game where it seems that the team got back to this identity, you know, defensively that Todd Graham has always wanted and had, you know, a couple of years ago. You know, where is he at right now in terms of his job? I personally, like I was saying it before, like I, I didn't think I thought it was a little bit premature to be asking for Todd Graham to be removed. But you look at or you, at least when you listen, consider what he's been saying after every press conference is that. You know, he's still trying to figure out at least marry, find the perfect marriage between the personnel that he has where he's saying that he um, recruited certain players to run this particular scheme and trying to marriage and couple that with what Phil Bennett is implementing defensively. And you're seeing against Oregon, I believe we saw more hints of that. Uh, against Stanford, not as much. But against Washington, we saw how impactful – I guess, like, even though we still haven't seen the nickel package at all from ASU this entire season, but they've still managed to, you know, get some side of, uh, positive results out of this. And then you look offensively, I know statistically the numbers don't look pretty at all, running the ball or really generating any points whatsoever. But you see the flashes and the willingness to utilize the different playmakers that ASU has. And I look at the coaching staff and the young talent that they have, considering they have – Mostly young players on offense. There's a couple of veterans on defense and key positions, but you're mostly going to have the same, I guess, unit coming back next year. I would think, in considering that, and just the fact that you have such a newness with this offense, or not just offensive staff, but this coaching staff in general, that I I would give Graham another year. And I, I've been kind of on that side of or in that realm of, of thought since the you know the year started off, not the way that ASU fans really expected it to, but. There, I just find it hard to think that he would somehow lose his job, especially after getting such a monumental victory as this. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest things that I've taken from the first six games is you can't in the in the off season when everybody's looking at a schedule and like picking which games are going to be wins and losses. That's just like a fruitless endeavor because because there's absolutely zero percentages of people who thought he was going to lose to San Diego state and Texas tech and beat Oregon and beat Washington. Like that's not even a possibility. Right. right. Uh, my overall sort of thought coming into the season was ASU would be a six win team, give or take a game. Well, that's probably what it is. It's just not the ones that you thought would be losses and the ones that you thought would be wins. And building off of what Kalen said, a lot of that is, uh, how many new moving pieces that you have with new coordinators and figuring out personnel and a lot of these challenges. And ASU played some pretty good teams yeah. at the outset of the season. Todd Graham even said this week, probably better schedule than when it was actually put together yeah. you know, 
you know, playing San Diego State's a pretty good team, beating Stanford. Texas Tech seems to be, you know, pretty reasonable uh, this season. And um, and ASU was just so early and, and figuring things out. Uh, I sort of, my analogy for this season was Todd Graham trying to get the, I think I've probably said this before on the podcast, trying to get the plane up to speed to take off of the runway before you run out of runway and actually crash into the whatever is at the other end. Um, and, and now they're that this win, this game was the game that got the wind underneath them yep. and got them off the ground. And now, as long as they can just continue to sail away, they, they, they have a chance of, of, of Graham saving his job. And obviously after what happened in San Diego state, Texas tech, most people thought, okay, they're going to miss a bowl game and, it's going to be the third losing season in a row for Graham, and he's probably not going to be able to survive that. I still think that he has a tough path to getting to a winning record this season because Utah on the road is not going to be any easier. USC at home is maybe the toughest team in the South, uh, at least you know probably neck and neck with Utah. And and so there is possibility for lo- losing the next two games, and then all of a sudden you're back at three and five and needing to have like a dominant November to salvage, you know, a respectable season, quote unquote. But um, so I'm not really changing my my the preseason forecast, although at the same time you have to acknowledge that things now are looking up more than they were uh, a week ago. And and there's potential for this to continue, especially on the defensive side, into another week because Utah's not an especially potent offensive team. They're not putting up huge points or anything like that, and they have some of the same limitations and style constraints to Washington um, though being on the road is a, is a, is a totally different thing mm-hmm. and Chris you mentioned coming into the season you projected this team at about 500 give or take a game and you know there were times a couple weeks ago where we were saying you know this team might struggle to win three and that's <laughs> just that's just based off how they were playing earlier in the year obviously mm-hmm. now it's different but how much can we take you know I mean finishing off their schedule here they have the whole south plus Oregon State so how much can ASU fans take away from this game and saying this is the team we're going to get for the rest of the year? Well, I think we're going to have to see if they're able to build off of the performance because they've, they've definitely gotten better on average on a weekly basis throughout the whole season. If that, if, if that builds and let's say they start to show a little bit more versatility in their offensive you know, ability to run the football uh, in, a, in a conventional way, or if um, maybe there's some regression uh, with Manny Wilkins, cause who's, who's actually played quite well through this point in the season. I just think we have to see. And and But I think to this point, I think fans are going to have a, a quandary on their hands now in terms of how they perceive Todd Graham and the era and what's happening in Tempe. Because mm-hmm. at one hand, it's like you recognize what just happened against Washington you see that there's actually potential there to be pretty good. Yeah. You see, to what Kalen said earlier, you're going to return four of your offensive line starters and Wilkins and all your receivers and probably not really go backwards in the run game. Your tight ends are back. Um, your defense is doing this with Phil Bennett in, in, in this game six of him being around. Yeah, with nobody. So why wouldn't they be better next year? You know, I kind of – several years ago I thought they were building in 2017 – then what happened is all the coaching changes sort of pushed that back a year. Now you could reasonably say that maybe 2018 they they actually could be a pretty good team. Um, but your 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 the counterweight to that 
is, well, as a fan, it's like, man, you know, this is their third season in a row where they're not actually kicking butt and, and going to a nice bowl game or any bowl game. And I'm not really happy with that. And so all those things are kind of playing in your minds. And so for a fan, I think it's, it's like a difficult assessment of where things are at. And, and that's why the next month of the season is so big. And uh, something I posted on the on the board on Sun Devil Source is basically every game is going to be the next biggest game of Todd Graham's career this whole season because, you know, now it's like, okay, the, if they, they lost to Washington, they were in massive trouble. If beating Washington, okay, well, now you still have to do something really s- successful to keep yourself in the Pac-12 South race and, and have a really good chance at a bowl game and all that. So – it's just one of those things where we're going to be having the same conversations probably almost every week. Mm-hmm. And to avoid that, let's talk Washington. Uh, before we really before we really look at the specifics of this game, uh, Kalen, let's start with you. Just from watching the game and, and you know looking into the stats and you know having to letting it marinate really for the last couple of days. Yeah. What, were, what were your impressions of this? It was surprising because the fact that they were only able to generate one rushing yard in that first half. That was probably the most mind-blowing statistic I, I think that came away from that game. When you look at the ability of ASU's front four to really dominate an opponent, I mean, we've seen it before. Like, the stats show it, right? Like, Smallwood and Wicker are in the top 10, 15 of the country in terms of generating pressure, and we, we've seen it too. Like, they've, there's been times where they've just been – they've been able to get into the backfield, but they'll overplay an opponent, and – so the potential is definitely there, but seeing it come to fruition against a running back who's been able to log 1,000 yards back-to-back years, you have a guy who's a first-round talent at left tackle, even though he ended up getting injured during that game. Um, I, I thought just the stoutness of ASU's front four really set up everything. And again, we talked about it um, during our last podcast. We we said if the Sun, Sun Devils can somehow force you know Jake Browning to really have to you know, be a gunslinger and, and have to throw 25 times in a game and really win it for Washington, then ASU would have a best chance. And that's what the game plan ended up doing. We, and you guys were mentioning it before the podcast. Like, it, it was the only time that they were really able to generate anything in the passing game was due to really schoolyard-type plays where he's running around 20 yards back behind the line of scrimmage. And I, I just think ASU's defensive game plan was very, very sound. And it made up for any, you know, it allowed their offense to only generate 13 points and come away with a win over a top five team. I thought that as much credit as I gave to Chris Peterson for the job he's done the last couple of years at, at Seattle with the Huskies and being 21 out of 23 wins and all that and thinking he's such a, a good, innovative football coach, they just had a really bad game. Like poorly coached, poorly prepared. They didn't stick with the run when they should have to probably wear ASU out or at least try to. Only 20 snaps in the first half. Defense is on the field way too much. Didn't like the use of timeouts. I thought that um, they were almost – there was like a a loss of focus or frustration because of their kicking game struggles that happened. And then equal parts to that was ASU's decision finally, finally, finally to play Rennell Wren – as a nose tackle, adjust to have not having Cron Crump out there, something that they weren't able to really do quickly enough after he was hurt in that game against Texas Tech, right? Then they, you know, I, I just felt like the, the the run game, the run defense was really poor against Oregon. It was really, it was, and then it got worse against Stanford. Give up the 301 rushing yards to Bryce Love. 
I think they realized, okay, we got to do something different here. Tayshawn Smallwood is not really a nose tackle. He's always played the three-tech spot. JoJo Wicker has been more successful in in, uh, in the past playing at the end versus playing at, at three. A.J. Latou was overwhelmed at, at, at playing Stanford as a field side end and needed to go back to the devil. And Renell Wren is, is a force. I mean, I understand he's got things that limit him and he's frustrating to coaches at times. Because, you know, he, he'll be out of position or he won't execute his assignment or whatever, but he's just too physically imposing against these types of teams where you need to be able to stop the run at the point of attack. And you throw him out there and he, he does it. George Lee played reasonably well. And um, and that, that, was the, that was the key difference in the game. I, I feel pretty confident that if ASU had done what it had done the previous couple weeks, that it would have given up another two or three big runs in that game. And then that would have probably ended up being the difference, but they didn't. It was like Washington had what, like two expo- two explosive runs in the whole game that were like twenty yards, and that was about it. Um, like almost no, like I think they had, I think Kevin Stewart told said after the game that that they Washington had like three or four like really successful plays in the whole game. I think he said five explosives. Five explosives total. total okay, yeah. yeah, five explosives total. I mean, think about it. Bryce Love had five explosives that went for 200 and something yards by himself <laughs> uh, against yeah. Stanford. So, um, and 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 to be sure, Washington doesn't have a lot of great offensive weapons. And then you lose Adams, their left tackle, who's an all-league player, and that hurt. And uh, and but but man, it's just uh, kind of unexpected in a lot of ways. Chris, you mentioned uh, Peterson and, and maybe a bad game plan really going into this ASU game and whether or not really that has anything to do with ASU coming off of a bye week, no one really know. But one thing I thought was interesting sitting in on, on Peterson and Browning's uh, pressers after the game was, you know, the media members still seem to be driving this, you know, idea that ASU's defense, you know, schematically is what it was three years ago with the crazy blitzes. And so I'm wondering, you so know, is weird. this is this something the media is doing or is this something they're getting from Peterson? And it's just – I don't know if they correlate, you know, the bad game plan with the fact that they're stuck in this idea that ASU blitzes, what, 75% of the time <laughs> like they used to. I just I thought that was interesting. Well, so this is, a di- this is a very different defense yes. than what they've done previously. And part of the challenge is that – so media is listening to Todd Graham talking about – you know we're not we're not making changes and da 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 and we've made some slight tweaks right. with Phil Bennett. No, no, this is a very different defense. <laughs> you may call the spur the spur or whatever, but but and I understand there's like some things that are structurally you sell know, a devil backer. You're still, it's, it's mm-hmm. still but 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 what they're actually doing is very different. In this game, they uh, rushed three defensive linemen more than Todd Graham did probably in his entire first three or four years of coaching in one game. So whether I didn't follow what Peterson had said in the week leading up to it enough to know if a lot of the disconnect was happening because he was providing information to media that was either perceived inaccurately or was actually incorrect in terms of what he was saying. I do think that Browning was sort of flustered by what ASU was doing Sometimes you prepare based upon your previous games playing against a team, and maybe they prepared in that in that way. Uh, but then there were some other things that ASU did in this game that were different from even its previous games this season. 
particularly with bringing the safeties up to the line of scrimmage and there not being clarity whether those people were going to come as blitzers or drop back into zone coverages. Usually they drop back, but occasionally you saw Daz Tautolatasi come on a blitz. And some of the amoeba-ish component to ASU zone pressures is something that we haven't seen previously. Tagram also talked about this 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 week where, okay, you'd bring four guys, but it'd be the the four guys that you didn't anticipate were going to come and somebody somebody on the other side is dropping or vice versa. And I think that maybe played with Jake Browning a little bit too much because he said after the game to this point, uh, they really didn't blitz that much. And they, and they didn't. ASU brought, you know, played a cover zero, six-man pressure, maybe a half dozen snaps in the game. Yeah, and that was something that, that they had done 30 times in a game in the in previous years under Todd Graham. So it's a very different defense in terms of how they're, what they're actually doing. Uh, they used to always – you used to know who was going to blitz, right? Because they would cheat the blitz, and then they would come on the blitz. Right. And now – if Daz Tautolatasi is is two yards off the line of scrimmage and he ends up in a in a cover three or a cover one or something, uh, that's not anything that, that people have seen before. And I, and I I really think, especially people that aren't they don't cover a program, they're not watching opponents of the team that that they cover closely enough to really get the full picture of comparatively how different a team may be from one year to the next. Mm, and then. You know, moving ahead to special teams, a place where we really thought was going to be a crucial part in this game, just mm-hmm. with Dante Pettis and yep. Washington's kickers, which obviously ended up being a big part of it. But I mean, I think Ryan Newsom only returned one punt, but he was the better return guy in this yeah. game. Yeah, he he looked like it, and they found and she found a way to neutralize Dante Pettis. I, I can't remember which punt it was, but the one where he ended up fielding it, and it was like a line drive, and you're thinking, oh crap, like the one time. Mm-hmm. Sleep Dalton is kicking it right to him. He ended up fumbling it. And Todd Graham gave – It was a bad snap. It was a really bad snap that he managed to get off. And I, th- that's what I'm saying. Like, the fact that you'd seen all of the blunders, you know, particularly right before halftime for ASU leading up into this game, for it to be completely flipped where Washington obviously coming in, they still haven't figured out their kicker, kicking situation. Um, and, again, like uh, finding a way to neutralize Washington, the best returner in uh, Washington history. I mean, that – that's one of the you know steps that you know Todd Graham I guess talks about and you know all the coaching or the coaches and the players talk about how sound as a group you know the mindset or the mentality is for this program you know there's a reason why they rank among the best in, in terms of penalties conceded or given up and then just the type of discipline that they play with you really saw it all come to fruition in terms of the result sure they weren't able to manufacture points but when you look at the final score the fact that they were able to limit Washington to potentially 13 points if you want to count the two field goals. Um, the way that they were able to hold them under seven and completely flip the field, you got to give Michael Sleep Dalton a lot of credit. And then, again, the Brandon Ruiz for coming in and knocking in two field goals. And uh, Curtis Hodges on the punt block, that that was something I didn't expect either because, I mean, we saw it two weeks ago up at Stanford how ASU's punt return unit completely gave away a, a free, what, 30-yard play on fourth down. So – it's good for them in terms of turning things around to play much more sound, and it ended up getting them a W. The, uh, t- t- with the Pettis thing, they had a good creative game plan, ASU did, as far as just angling the punts away from him, having them be out of bounds or, or near the boundary and kind of 
pinning it in the corner, even though they weren't pretty punts. And then there was something really ironic that happened in this game, which is on the Curtis Hodges block punt that actually was enabled by a misassignment by somebody who was supposed to block J.J. Wilson. <laughs> so it was like something karmatic forces in the world, or, or I don't know. But J.J. Wilson had made some pretty big mistakes on special teams earlier that had cost ASU the season or just in general on the field. And uh, and it was so wild to see uh, uh, one of Washington's offensive linemen choose to not block him, which then put two pass rushers into one of the protectors uh, at the second line for Washington. And that guy had to decide between J.J. Wilson or Curtis Hodges. He picked J.J. Wilson. That was a mistake. And, uh, and you know, in, in more than one ways, probably. And Curtis Hodges was just there basically untouched. So it, so they, so when I watched it initially, I thought that they had just overloaded it and there's one too many guys, but it turns out that it was a, just, a just a pure misassignment. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, almost like another – that's like emblematic of the whole game, which was ASU having the special teams play that proved significant – go it in its favor and Washington had the two missed field goals we knew the field goal unit was a, a, you know a real problem um, and so the special teams that was in and of itself probably the difference in the game yeah, yeah. and not in, not in the way we expected I think that's safe to say but one yeah. more one more thing before we move to the ASU offense the last point on their defense one thing that we've talked about all year long in a, in a way they've been struggling is on third and long mm-hmm. and and third down they were they were awesome this game I mean uh, Washington was three and fourteen on third, three of fourteen on third down. Two of those conversions came on the last drive. Really, I, I don't know if we mentioned on the podcast, but when ASU's defense was pretty gassed, yes, really, pretty obviously gassed, um, very gassed. And then, and then the one, the one other one was when Browning was scrambling for his life after Daz, Daz missed the sack, and then had to throw across the field to Coleman, who was just left wide open. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you're ASU, you have to be. I mean. Not even if you're ASU. If you're an ASU fan and you yeah. see this, it's like, where the heck was this earlier in the year? So the first couple games, I think it was the first three games where they were among the worst in the country in terms of third down percentage. I wish we could pull up the statistics for the past three because ever since or- the Oregon game, mm-hmm. ASU has looked like a completely different unit on third down. Even in the Stanford game, I mean, sure, they, they gave up a couple home runs, but if, if you, you see how sound they can be when they get – and I think Phil Bennett and Napier and even – Todd Graham talk about, you know, getting opponents in standard downs, like being able to affect them to where they're in third and long situations, how much pressure and stress that puts on an offense. And for Washington, and we mentioned again, like they don't have any playmakers outside of Dante Pettis, who, again, we, we should mention that Kobe Williams played an outstanding game. Yeah. And like him and Chase yeah. Lucas really shut that dude down. But um, getting back to the third down thing, like if you're able to put stress on an offense that doesn't necessarily have a capable quarterback of, you know, going downfield or being able to attack with only – one or two options, um, it, it put a lot of stress on where, to the point where they were unable to really convert, and they hadn't been in that kind of position before where they were trailing at halftime and then having to kind of catch up. So, you know, credit ASU for playing, again, like sound defense throughout the entirety of the game. They they played uh, in the backfield of Washington State pretty consistently, even when they only rushed three guys because of Tayshaun Smallwood, JoJo Wicker, uh, Adams being out for Washington really hurt from a pass rush standpoint. Uh, ASU jammed up the run lanes on the interior. Washington didn't run the ball as much inside and, and probably not as much jumbo sets as they probably should have to sort of try to wear on ASU. 
and uh, really good run fits and also perimeter pursuit by ASU's linebackers, DJ Calhoun and Christian Sam. I think DJ Calhoun is playing the best football of his career. Um, I think he's lighter and in shape and, and, and is confident in what he's being asked to do. Jamarcus Rhodes, from what you expected a year ago to now from a player, I think he's the most impressive Absolutely. to me. Uh, and I totally agree that Kobe Williams is playing lights out football. Uh, is a guy getting boxed out by a 240-pound tight end in the end zone and managing to make a play and get a hand on. He did the same thing in disrupting one of the better receivers in the league. Um, you know, for a 160-pound guy who just literally came arrived at ASU like a few weeks before camp started, mm-hmm. that's remarkable. Chase Lucas is is more than holding its own his own for the playing cornerback for the very first time uh, at, at at this level, and uh, and I would say that even though it didn't show up in the stat sheet, Chad Adams actually had a really good uh, yeah, game as well. He had a really nice deflection. Uh, his improvement in his senior season has been good. You probably saw seven or eight ASU players defensively have the best game of their careers all on the field together, and um, and that's just part of what made it such a such a you know special night for for the Sun Devils. And mentioning Calhoun and Sam, you know they're two of the only three Pac-12 players that are averaging at least nine tackles a game. And they're number one and number three in the Pac-12 in, in tackling, and Jeez. that's obviously been, been huge for them on all levels but now let's shift for the shift towards the offense I mean you know there's a lot to talk about obviously with the play of of Manny Wilkins and and you know while they may have struggled this is the best defense they'll face all year I think that's safe to say mm-hmm. but that let's talk about that first drive it, it was what eight minutes 16 plays yeah. you know one of the most ticky-tack drives you know I've seen Washington <laughs> give up in a long time you know since Peterson's been there but just you know, this was a different a different game for the offense in the fact that they they struggled at times. But you know, we saw a lot of the same things like Wildcat and, and using yeah. Nikhil Harry and Kyle Williams in so many different ways. Yeah, and like you mentioned, the variation just on the first possession alone is what probably ended up winning them the game. Um, the fact that they were willing, you know, coming out of the gates to pound Kalen, to pound Demario, and then be able to go to the Kyle Williams, to go to Nikhil Harry. Then we saw, I think it was the fourth down conversion down in the red zone where they ended up doing that Patriot screenplay mm-hmm. where Nikhil comes over and you have two lead blockers in front of him and, you know, you just let him ha- use his momentum to get the first down on, like, a fourth down and two or whatever it was. But that that was as impressive as, you know, un- it's like an impressive, unimpressive drive, if that makes sense. Because they, they weren't getting significant yards or chunk yardage. It was just they were leveraging themselves down the field slowly but surely and doing it in whatever fashion you can. And, you know, that goes back to the point where I say, like, you, you should let this coaching staff kind of manifest itself and have more time together because you're seeing what the potential could be. And the players talk about it. They, they left points out in the field, but that first drive really was, you know, all of it coming to fruition where everything sort of inches its way towards the goal line. And I think that's symbolic of the, the progress ASU's made this year. It, it was – an eight-minute, eight-second drive, the longest drive for ASU since 2013. And yet, if you look at it, they were on schedule pretty much throughout the drive. They had a third and three, then they had a third and four, and then their longest uh, third down before the very end of the drive was a third and five. Um, Third and nine was the only one that was long uh, on like the 12th or 13th play of the drive. 
um, where they came up a yard short and then they had the fourth and one mm-hmm. where they did the, 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 yeah. the Patriot play. Um, and I like the Patriot play sort because it's something they hadn't done previously all season. They hadn't yep. shown it at all, at all. Wilkins is under center. You think they're going to run because it's under center. You're in trips, but it's not like a bunch set trips. And then Harry Trent comes, you know, in motion towards Wilkins unless a team is going to do switching of the routes there or play a zone, which you're never going to see on a fourth and one in, in that sort of a situation, um, that's going to be open every time because those guys are blocking as soon as the ball comes out. So I thought it was a great play call. They went to it again l- later. The timing was off, w- mm-hmm. and it gave it away. That coupled with seeing the formation, I think, gave it away on what it was, and they weren't able to be successful on it. But the creativity continues in the red zone. Yep. That's They've been point. very successful in the red zone and, and at a high level of, of touchdown conversions uh, compared to previous ASU offenses. And and I think that's Billy Napier, and part of that is what they did this in this game with the Patriot. And, and just you wonder how much innovation they're going to be able to do to where is this going to be every week they come up with something different yep. that functions in, in the red zone. But as it turns out, they needed that because imagine if they don't get that. The whole game changes. You go eight eight minutes. You, you don't get a fourth and one conversion inside the the the, the five yard line of Washington, and that you know when you only score thirteen points in a game and that's seven. That that's a monumental thing. Mm, and that and you know ASU was perfect in the red zone going into this game. I think it was eighteen of eighteen mm-hmm. scoring in the red zone, and now they're obviously not perfect because they had to take a knee to end the game. But I think <laughs> I think most fans will be okay with that. But you know, the funny thing about this game is that, you know, we talk about the importance of that first drive and, you know, the second, or you can even call it the most important drive, arguably, was the last drive of the game for ASU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something we've been talking about really all day today was that, that fourth and third play, fourth and three play. But before we get into that, Kalen, would you punt or would you go for it? I would have punted. Oh, man, like my gut wants, my gut would say go for it because why not? But, you know, I think... I would have punted. <laughs> I I would have punted also. Did did Washington have no timeouts left or one timeout left? I don't think they had any. I think none. I think think none. Um, they're at the thirty-seven yard line. It's fifty-five yards. I think that's too far. Ruiz had missed wide left from forty-seven earlier in the mm-hmm. game, and going for it, you just have a number of things that could go wrong. Something almost did go wrong, well, really. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. things went wrong. You know, like still. having a 380-pound defensive tackle like pile drive you and smash you into the ground on, on a play. <laughs> it's not exactly how it was designed. But, um, but, I, but I, Kalen kind of said it, which is when you already have three losses and you're playing yeah. against a number five team. Oh my God. That if you're gonna <laughs> if you're going to go for it, that's kind of like the time that you would you know go for mm-hmm. it when you're in that. And that's your record, and that's your situation, and whatever. But just, but ASU had had done very, so well defensively in the game that to me, even if you punted in the end zone, and it's 17 yards, that 17 yards is a play or two. That the play or two is 20, 30 seconds, you know, something, depending on what happens. And that's a that's a that's a that's a, a large amount of time when you when you're talking about a two minute and four seconds or whatever was left in the game at, at that stage. I would have punted it. But it's not the type of thing where you can look at it and go, oh, yeah, ASU made a clear mistake because they didn't. Although they almost made about three in one play. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah I mean, they, they made multiple mistakes <laughs> on the actual play, but as far as the decision, 
you know, probably not really, a, not a mistake. You know, another part of the stars aligning that we keep saying about this game. But yeah. um, <laughs> any final thoughts on on this big win and then heading into into Utah? Man, I'm there. It's funny to me. This doesn't really have to do with the game itself, but just like the the mentality of the team. And, you know, they're not being they're not lying when they say how confident they were going into the game. Like, and even building off of that, I mean, sure, the celebration stuff on the field day after, da, 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 but, I mean, today it's all business again. It's like it never happened. I mean, they'll laugh about it. I mean, we've gotten some great reactions about the play, but besides that, I, I think it's really interesting. This is a different ASU team than I've covered, and I've only been covering for two or three years, though. So. And there's something, <laughs> to me, there was something, some, even, like, before the game, they just it just had a different feel to it. Uh, the, maybe it's the blackout, you know, the, the guys were dancing on the sidelines and, um, it just had, a, it just had a feeling like maybe something was, was in the air. And, uh, and I was struck after the game by the contrast from San Diego state. Remember when AS, we, we stand, the reporters stand in that North end zone when games end before we go into the media room and the players come and they. Uh, will basically stand before the students in the north end zone before they go into the uh, locker room after the game. And after San Diego State, you just saw like the most, the, probably the highest level of frustration or despair that you could probably see from 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 the players. And when that's when that's your reality in a non-conference game at the outset of a season, and you and you and you're watching that, there's a, there's a creeping of this might be the way that this season is that this mm-hmm. this game is going to be representative of this season so then to see that juxtaposed against what happened after the game of beating Washington the first top 5 win since 96 the third in the last quarter century uh or actually 30 years it it, it and then you see like I wrote this in my column. It was like somebody brought a beach ball and they were like throwing it around and you had a, a young boy on the shoulders of his father and he wasn't wearing his shirt <laughs> and you know, the, the music was going and Sparky is like swag surfing the crowd and players are it like that's surreal when you, when you, when you have in your memory players look being dejected and miserable after losing to San Diego state a few weeks earlier. And so I think just just that um, that that visual image in your in your mind of it is probably what will always stick with me about about that game, regardless of what happens the rest of the season. Because look, we face it: if ASU somehow goes and wins, you know, five or six of the, its remaining games and wins the Pac-12 South, then this becomes a, a much bigger yes. thing. <laughs> but the odds of that happening are very small. And the more likely scenario is is maybe ASU went, you know sneaks into a bowl game, or maybe just barely misses a bowl game or something. And are people going to re- really remember, you know, a lot of that part of it? What people are going to really remember in that sort of a season is what happens with Todd Graham, the big picture, and then the, the emotional thing that you had of that Washington game, especially in light of what had transpired earlier in the season. And so that's the thing that I and going to be left with from from that game. Mm. We'll have a few more pieces of Washington content throughout the week, but ASU is on to Utah, so we will also be on to Utah. We'll have our premium podcast previewing the game later in the week as always, but that's enough for football in this episode. 
basketball had their second annual Mill Madness last Friday. Um, really cool event. Yes. Love, so love cool. the outdoor. Yes. Love the outdoor feel. Um, before I say his name, I, I need I need this clarified. Is it Xylan Cheatham or Xylan Cheatham? Cheatham. Cheatham? Mm-hmm. I've heard both. Xylan I went, Cheatham. I was, on, I was on YouTube trying to, like, because I did, I did a package for Cronkite News on this, and I was trying to say his name in the voiceover, and I was, like, watching all these San Diego State videos of all these announcers <laughs> saying his name, and it was, like, 50-50, so I, was, I just wanted to get that cleared up. For anyone wondering also. But uh, Xylan Cheatham <laughs> won the dunk contest. Shannon Evans yes. won the three-point contest. And, um, you know, really ready for basketball season, it seems like everyone is. It, I, I, Something I said, I wrote a column after this event, the Mill Madness event. Um, and and important caveat to this is three of these guys have to sit out the season, right? Three of their better looking, you know, more athletic, higher regarded guys. But one through 13, just the scholarship positions on this team, uh, I've been following ASU basketball really closely since around 1994, and this is the 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 longest, most athletically capable group I would say overall, on the whole, uh, since the 1995 Sweet 16 team, which um, is really saying something, right? And and yeah, okay, a couple of these guys aren't going to be able to play, and that. That affects it to some degree. And ASU's had a couple other NCAA tournament seasons. The one with Ike Diagu, Tommy Smith, Sean Redditch, uh, Kyle Dodd. That was pretty good. Uh, you had another season, pardon me, where you had, of course, James Harden and and Jeff Pendergraf and Eric Botang and Derek Glasser and, and those guys, uh, Ty Abbott. Um, I think that this is a more athletic team than that. And I'll definitely, you know, uh, there's more things that they can do with the, with this team. Probably. Um, is it especially deep in light of the fact that three of these guys can't play and they're only 10? No, it's not especially deep and it's not crazy freaky athletic and it's not like a top 15 team. I'm not saying any of that, but it just has the look, the, the best look of a college basketball team, probably since I've been following ASU basketball, just, just throwing that out there. And, and so, and so, what does that mean? It, it means uh, year three of Bobby Hurley era. Last year, the team exceeded expectations. What did they finish seven and eleven in the league last year? Or? I think so. I think seven. I think 11. they won seven games, yeah. which is a little bit better than what was anticipated. You know, they finished eleventh. Uh, they, they were picked to finish eleventh, I think, in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, this should be. They should be a better team. They have a chance to be a. They're at least a bubble NCAA tournament team. They were picked what sixth in the in the preseason media poll. We talked about that, mm-hmm. um, but they have a chance to be anywhere in that four, five, six range probably, and um, and and that was on display. They didn't even need to. They didn't play any. They didn't play any basketball. You know, they did some warm up line. They did some dunking. They did some <laughs> shooting, and that was enough for me. I was like, okay, you guys are pretty athletic, yeah, <laughs> and you guys have some. You know, you look different than 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 previous teams, and that that was kind of my big takeaway. Yeah, no, it, it definitely has a different feel because you look at – and we were talking about just the veterans of the team, just looking at, you know, physically the difference that Shannon Evans, I know I, I we, we spoke to him afterwards and he said that he hasn't changed too much differently about his regimen or just, you know, his shot style. But he looks – I don't know. His, the way that he's shooting the ball looks much more compact, more fluid. He looks like he's playing a bit more freely. And there's a little bit of confidence too because I, I, I would assume if, you know, you go from a year where – you're relying on five guys really rotating five, six, seven players, if that. 
and now you have an influx of talent where you're not only playing these guys in practice, but they're they're on your side. Like you have reinforcements going into year. So I would assume there's a little bit of confidence going in, into the season in comparison to the last. But I agree with you. I was blown away by the fact that there's an athletic ASU basketball team, so to speak, that isn't just relying on one or two players. Mm-hmm. I, I the coolest thing for me from from this mill madness has was. Com- almost like completing the transformation of of Trey Holder, it was it's been so bizarre. Wow. You know, as a fr- freshman Trey Holder, you, you know, for people who remember, was this shy, <laughs> wouldn't say a word, like not a leader on the fl- not not a, no offense to Trey, but just not he didn't knows. have the buildup yeah, of a leader. He knows he on did. the floor. Yeah, and he was he just came off as this timid guy who liked to play basketball, and then and you know right off the bat at Mill Madness, the team shows up. And he's he's dancing in front of the crowd. It was like I was like, this is not the same Trey Holder. And we saw a little bit of that last year. You know, he's obviously broke out as one of the one of the better guards in the Pac-12. But just his personality and and really just and I guess that kind of goes into what you were saying. Just the feel of this team is so different. And and you know, Trey Holder. It, it was funny because Trey Holder comes out dancing, and and then Shannon Evans comes in and just kind of kind of jogs out. It was like, <laughs> it was like, and I think that speaks to the maturation of both of them. Just yeah. just in different ways. But I mean those two, and then and then plus Cody Justice. I mean, I th- it's gonna it's gonna be a fun team. I mean, I'd, obviously the results will speak for the, for itself. But I think no matter what, this is gonna be a fun team to watch. Well, uh, you, you people who watch you know college basketball or football closely, and it, it becomes it's so commoditized and, and it's such a big business that it's very easy to not have the perspective of what it's like different for an 18 year old versus a 21 or 22 year old like that the growth that you have as a person at that stage of your life for a lot of these people is significant and then on top of that you overlay the experience factor of what it's like of playing for three years of of basketball or football in addition to the personal maturity that you have that you have and that you develop and the, the the people skills and the leadership and all those kinds of things and and you guys are too young for this, but college basketball used to be phenomenal. In maybe you remember it somewhat, you know, going back to the you know the nine late nineties or whatever, but early two thousands. But uh, but you go back to like you know when I grew up in the in the nineteen eighties, and the, some of the best players in basketball were around for three seasons or four seasons, like regularly. And you just saw the maturity of those teams and the development of their rosters and the roles that younger players had, knowing that like now like there's an entitlement component to you come in and you're expected to be the man. And if you're not the man, then you're going to transfer or you're going to go to the league. Or even if you're not really that good, you're still going to the league anyways. All that stuff just kind of messes with the whole – it just kind of pollutes college basketball and it just makes it not as fun or enjoyable. And And – for ASU this season to have three senior guards who have been around for four or five years, Shannon Evans had to sit out a year. Um, there's a there's it, it has a lot of that extra character flavor that that you know isn't necessarily always around. That uh, and for fans, it's like you've been watching these guys for three or four years, and that matters. You know, there's an emotional component that's associated with that that isn't even there even if you have a great player for one year, I think. 
Uh, I mean, that you like that, and that's cool, but if you don't go to the tournament, it doesn't really go to anything, then what does that ultimately make worth? What was the utility of having that, you know, ultimately? So I just think that's important, and, um, and also uh, Bobby Hurley probably deserves credit for doing some smart things with recruiting, even though it may not pay off dividends this year, but, but by taking Rob Edwards, Island Cheatham, and uh, Carlton Bragg as transfers, it sets the roster up for this to be replenished a year from now. So these people are getting talked about a lot, and then they're uh, assimilating to what you're doing programmatically and your system, and they're seeing you probably being a better team. And then that can get passed off without having to worry about the uh, team chemistry being a problem because there's 13 scholarship players and everybody thinks that there should, they should be a star and only eight or nine are actually playing in games. I think a lot of people would have chased uh, trying to add another player or two who could help you this year and actually would have made your program worse. So I think Bobby Hurley deserves credit. I think their recruiting has been very good. I think that you have this, this uh, especially because Cody's a local player. A lot of people, he could have gone somewhere else, transferred, whatever, done his own thing. Trey Holder, you talked about the maturity components. Shannon Evans decided to transfer with Bobby Hurley, there's, there's a component to that. And then you surround these guys with more ancillary pieces and size and Romello White and Kamani Lawrence and pretty pretty darn good uh, football, uh, basketball prospects. And there's there's uh, a chance to have something that a lot of fans who are diehard basketball people will, will really appreciate. And so uh, that's something that I know a lot of you listeners are probably looking forward to very much in the coming weeks. Mm, especially in a what seems to be a wide-open Pac-12 mm-hmm. other than really the top two spots. but Yeah, but, uh, yeah. depending on what happens with uh, those schools. Yeah, those <laughs> those two schools. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone probably hopefully knows what, what we're referring to. But uh, any last last words about anything? No, just uh, stay tuned for the premium podcast. If you're not a subscriber on sunnevelsource.com, we're going to have – uh, really in-depth preview of Utah in a game that, heck, if ASU wins, then maybe ASU becomes like a co-frontrunner with USC for the Pac-12 South. Uh, we'll have uh, analysis of ASU's team at the midway point, in turn, including some uh, some MVP predictions or you know who who have been the best players or the most improved players or whatever to this point in the season. A lot more, and that'll be out later in the week. Um, final thought. Um, I'm still in shock. I still can't believe it. So. <laughs> there you go. A lot of you are probably feeling the same way Kalen does. But regardless, <laughs> listen to Chris. Keep track of all of our content and be ready for our premium podcast that will be later in the week. Thanks, as always, for listening and have a have a splendid day. <laughs>